Let us pray. Lord Jesus, open our ears to hear you. Open our mouths to proclaim you. Speak the word Ephatha over us that we might be open to all that you have because you, Lord Jesus, have done all things well. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. It's so good to be back among you. Um, This is home. This is home for us. And we're so thankful that you guys gave us the opportunity to have all of the experiences that we did in the Holy Land uh, this summer and in in Greece. Uh, What an incredible opportunity you gave us that hopefully will continue to give you life as we go along. And then for those of you who know, we finally finished our remodeling project in our bathroom and bedroom that we've been working on for three years, thanks to Bill Meyer and, and Alice lending him to us. There, I could just go on and on with Thanksgiving, but let's turn to the Word of God. So growing up in eastern North Carolina, as I did, George Washington was kind of a big deal. And living there, you could especially understand why. North Carolina, as you know, is one of the original 13 colonies. So we talked a lot about the importance of the Revolutionary War and the establishment of our country. And, of course, George Washington is a, if not the, central figure to that story. First General Washington, as he was a leader during the time of the Revolutionary War, and following the war, as we know, he was elected first president of these United States of America. Washington was born in Virginia, just to the north of North Carolina, and perhaps because I also was born in Virginia, I took a particular interest in learning about him. And as we know, stories and myths and legends have grown up around his persona, stories about chopping down the proverbial cherry tree, his, his honesty uh, that he was called to account when he did that, or, or perhaps the one, one of my more favorite legends of him skipping a silver dollar across the Potomac River. So there's nothing like a good old field trip, right? Nothing like a good old field trip, because it's one thing to hear about George Washington, but it's another thing to go to Mount Vernon, right? It's another thing to visit Washington, D.C. and see our nation's history for ourselves, to walk through Washington's home, to gaze up at his monument, to visit the specific site where he and Martha are buried. And so when you walk on the same soil as George Washington did, Well, you get a little closer to substantiating those stories. And sometimes it's a little easier to dispel the myths too, right? We don't know for sure about the chopping down of the cherry tree, but if you've you've seen the Potomac River, it's kind of wide. And the likelihood that he or even Roger Staubach could skip a silver dot. Now, I know how great Roger Staubach is, don't get me wrong. It's a wide river. (laughs) The larger point is this. Being where George Washington was strengthens and deepens your understanding of who the man was. And maybe you've had your own kind of experience like this. Maybe it was in visiting Washington, D.C. Maybe it was in going down to the Alamo in San Antonio. Or maybe you yourself, like me now, have been to the Holy Land. Again, my family and I want to thank you for this incredibly opportunity, incredible opportunity you gave us. And I think... If someone were to ask me, what's, what's one thing that you might say to sort of sum up the whole experience, 
it would be like this. You certainly don't have to go to Israel to believe in Jesus, right? John's Gospel is plain about that. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Jesus is very clear that you don't have to see to believe. But when you go, or at least when I went, you have this certain sense. You know the phrase, you, you know that you know that you know that you know, right? It's, it's kind of like that. It's hard to describe in words. Well, we were talking about the trip at the vestry retreat a couple of weeks ago, and when I said that in front of the vestry and before Father Roseberry, the one who has been helping coach us and, and, and lead the trip that I took, he said when he went for the very first time 25 years ago or more, that was exactly his sentiment. That when you go to Israel, you kind of know that you know that you know that you know. And hopefully the stories that God continues to give me to tell in sermons and Bible studies over the course of this year and beyond will really help us galvanize that reality. And as I said to the Sunday school class this morning, my hope is it will actually take a pilgrimage as a congregation in the year 2020. So I invite you to begin to uh, consider that and pray about that. Would God be calling you uh, to participate in a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the year 2020? Well, as we approach the text this morning and we engage the message of the gospel for today, hopefully we can take our own sort of trip to the Holy Land right here and now as much as we're able. And as we do, I want us to keep four things in mind. Four things in mind as we go along and explore the story of the gospel this morning. First is the man, and then the miracle, the message, and the motivation. The man, the miracle, the message, and the motivation. First, the man. As we already know, the very thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion, the very thing that makes Christianity unique is the claim that Jesus is the God-man. That God actually took on flesh and became like one of us in every way except that He did not sin. Which, of course, is what was capable of making Him our Savior. Right? God took on flesh. And today we find this God-man named Jesus, and He's walking through the land of Israel, no less. If you'll advance the slide, I tried to get some kind of a perspective for us on what His specific journey this morning was like in the story that we're reading. So in the Scriptures, we see that He's in the region of Tyre. You can see that there on the northwestern shore of the land of Israel. And He actually goes northward then to Sidon, and then He kind of proceeds southeasterly to the Sea of Galilee. So if we want to get some perspective on just how much Jesus was walking, in this one story alone, I factored it to be about 65 miles. About 65 miles. Now, for local perspective, that's about like walking to Dallas and back. Not that anyone would want to go to Dallas. But it's about like walking to... Sorry to the good folks who live in Dallas. (laughs) I love you, Bethy. (laughs) But quite unlike walking to Dallas in other ways, look at the terrain. It's not flat. It's at least hilly and somewhat mountainous, so you, you either have to go around it, right, or you have to go over it or through it somehow. But I think however Jesus got from one place to another, in other words, whatever specific path He walked, the larger point is this. Look at how much God loves us. Look at how much God cares for us. 
that he would take on flesh, that he would strap on a pair of sandals like every one of the Israelites would have worn, and he would have walked in the dirt just like they did and sometimes just like we do. Can you imagine the God-man walking through the land of Israel? A 65-mile journey just in this story. He took on flesh and he walked the earth. Why? Just to be with us, to be with you, to be with me. Because that's what love does, right? Love acts on behalf of another person. So the first thing we see is the God-man Jesus acting on our behalf going to great lengths just to be with us. One manifestation of his love, of course, is found in our second observation. The God-man named Jesus, who we encounter in this story, he's on a very clear mission. And in this case, his mission involves another man, a man who cannot hear, a man who cannot speak. And Jesus performs a miracle in his life. Don't overlook how important that is. Don't overlook how important that biblical claim is that the God-man who took on flesh and was on a mission to save the world means that He's on a mission to save us also individually. And so He encounters this man and performs a miracle in His life. He arrives at the Sea of Galilee, a place that He frequented in the Gospel narratives, and the people bring to Jesus a man who is deaf and is mute. But note that they don't just bring the man to Jesus. The text tells us that they beg of Jesus. They beg of Jesus to lay His hands upon the man. And the understanding that we should have is this. The crowd knows that they are powerless to heal the man. Right? The crowd can't do anything to help this man hear. The crowd can't do anything to help this man speak. So they bring him to Jesus. Well, So now we know what the man himself also knows, right? He can't fix himself. The man has no power within himself to help himself. Would that he could, right? Would that he could open his own ears and loose his own tongue. Don't you know that he would have? Love to hear. Love to speak. To have conversation, communication. To to hear what his family and friends had to say to him. One time. To respond in a conversation one time. Where it didn't feel strained and garbled and embarrassing and humiliating. One time. So let's look at the crowd a little closer. You see, they weren't just hoping or guessing on this point, were they? Jesus had been around the Sea of Galilee before, and the people of Galilee had seen Jesus heal before. In fact, in the first six chapters of the book of Mark, I encourage you to go back and reread it. It's filled with stories about the healing power of Jesus Christ. How He walked on the water and calmed the storm. How He healed the sick and He cast out demons. His authority over nature. His authority over demons and His authority over disease. Jesus demonstrated those things. And by the way, there's Matthew's account and Luke's account and John's account. And the story continues in the book of Acts through the apostles. And the accounts that are told there how by the Spirit of Jesus they did these same things. 
The Bible repeatedly tells us that Jesus, the God-man, is the one who has the power to perform miracles. So first we observe that God became man. Second, we see that the God-man performed miracles. And these two things, as we say regularly, these are facts that are foundational to our Christian faith. This is why we have faith, in other words, because we believe these things to be fact. That they actually happened in human history. Another way to say that is this. The intersection of theology and reality is history. Right? The intersection of theology, our thoughts about God, and the reality that we live is the history. The way God has actually acted. The way He's actually manifested Himself to this world as we sang about in our opening hymn. So now let's look at this miracle a little more closely. Because there's this man who can't hear. And this man who can't speak. And look at how Jesus treats him. He's not come to put on some cosmic sideshow. He doesn't make a spectacle out of the man before the crowd. The text tells us he, he calls him aside. He calls the man to himself. And there's so much power and so much energy, imagery and energy, realizing the intimacy with which God wants to touch our lives the personal nature in which He wants to speak to us and heal to us and set us free. I think there's a message to get to the third point. I think there's a message in the way Jesus, the God-man, performs this miracle. Notice how personal it is. Even though a great crowd brings the man to Jesus, Jesus separates him from the crowd. He takes him privately and personally and He deals with him one-on-one. How many of us are willing to let Jesus in in that way? To deal with us individually, to deal with us personally, to speak into our lives and ours alone about the plans and purposes He has for us because that's what He's after. And so here's how He does it. And it's so powerful and it's so poignant and it's so personal. He, the God-man, puts His hands in the deaf man's ears. And, and he spits and he touches his tongue. And as I was imagining what it might be like to be that man, I can't imagine. I've, I've never had those physical disabilities. I can't imagine. But as I tried to put myself into the story and, and into the shoes of that man, this is the picture that came into my head. see that beautiful painting Michelangelo made in the Sistine Chapel and the Ancient of Days just centimeters just centimeters from Adam so this powerful image of creation started to unfold because what's happening here my friends is the new creation It's a new creation in Christ Jesus. And Father, be open. Jesus looks up to heaven, speaking to his Father. He breathes a sigh. You can hear the Spirit brooding over creation. And he speaks the word of Father. Be open. Be loosed. Like 
God the Father in the beginning, in the creation. Now, God the Son, the God-man, the performer of miracles, is making a new creation. He reaches out his hand and he touches the man. And I love what the text says next. Not just that the man spoke, but notice the word. Did you catch it? The man spoke plainly. The man spoke plainly. And you get this image in your mind and in your head and in your idea that when Jesus touches your life, you start to speak plainly. That's the depth of what's going on here. Because I dare say most of us have the ability to hear and the ability to speak. That is in the natural. But we're way beyond things in the natural now at this point, are we? We're talking about realities in the supernatural. Can we hear the word of God? Are we free to proclaim the word of God? Father, be opened. So here's the question. Here's the message within the miracle that I think speaks to perhaps two groups in the room this morning. Perhaps reasonable speculation at least. One message, of course, is a message of encouragement. If you are regularly hearing the word of God... If you're regularly speaking the Word of God, amen. Rejoice. My Word, the Bible says, which goes forth will what? Not return to me void. Every time you, every time I, every time we speak the Word of God, life happens. New life happens. Redemptive life happens. You and I are co-creators with Christ in this new creation. You and I, when we listen to the Word of God, when we speak the Word of God, we speak deliverance and freedom into people's lives. We get to do that. We get to do that. There is, of course, another side to the coin. Are there any impediments? Are there any impediments in our lives right now that are preventing us from hearing the Word of God, from speaking the Word of God? And if so, what are they? And not just what are they, right? But why? Why are they there? What, what is it that we might be allowing to, to block our ability to hear the very divine Word that wants to speak life over us, that wants to set us free? It wants to give us, as the scriptures say, a hope and a future. And I think if we're in that place this morning, that's the simple encouragement of this passage to you. Are there any impediments that are preventing us from hearing the word of God? If so, what are they? And why are they there? And I think that takes us to the fourth and final point that I would want to observe about the story. It's the motivation. Jesus, the God-man who loves us so much that he would walk 65 miles, even to Dallas and back if he had to, to perform miracles in our lives because he loves us, because he's making a new creation in himself, that man who performs miracles gives us the message that if you're proclaiming the word of God, good for you. And if you're not, why not? And now we get to the motivation behind it all. We come back to the crowd and we focus in again on the man. 
and the passage tells us this, his ears were open, his tongue was loosed, and the man begins to speak plainly, and notice the reaction of the crowd. The crowd, as you would hopefully expect, it says, was astonished. They were astonished at Jesus' work. And then they said this, they said, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. So if there's, a, if there's a word I would invite us to speak over ourselves, to speak life into our lives, He has done all things well. Maybe we can even practice that now. He has done all things well. Are you with me? He has done all things well. That, he has done all things well. My experience with people in ministry over the years is often we don't hear and often we don't speak because we're either afraid or ashamed. I'll say that's at least true of me. Either we think God can't love us or maybe we think God can't forgive us. And so we try to hide in the shadows of life, just like Adam and Eve after the fall, right? Or, or we go the other way. We, we boldly blaze our own trail, going where no man has gone before, and that's no good either. Those are the things that prevent us from hearing and speaking the Word of God. That's what it means for us to fall in love with our own flesh or to become bound to the wiles of the devil. Those are the things that, when I'm going to forge my own way, like the prodigal son, or when I'm going to listen to the serpent rather than the Savior, those are usually what I find the impediments to be. So let me close with a little story. Ever have that time when you were a kid? And if you're a kid, maybe you're right in the middle of this time. I don't know, I'm just throwing that out there. Ever have that time when you were a kid, you did something wrong and you knew it? I'll be the only one here today. <laughs> and so, it, when that happened to me frequently, and maybe because I'm a little bit of, of an introvert, but certainly I had a, a pretty strong conscience, I, I hope, I think, you just, I decided to stay outside. I would just, that was my remedy. If I knew I did something wrong, I would stay outside. <laughs> and I would hope that it would pass. Maybe enough time would go by, or maybe mom and dad would forget, and, and this is where I would end up. We had a great big magnolia tree in our backyard. And if you've ever been around a magnolia tree in eastern North Carolina, they're, they're pretty thick. You know, the branches sprawl out, and it's, as a kid at least, it feels like it's pretty easy to hide deep in the trunk and kind of sit in there in the limbs. Well, that, that's what I would do. Not that that ever happened to me, right, Mom? <laughs> but when it finally came to right the wrong, here's what my parents did. My parents always, and this is important, my parents always offered me the help that I needed to get it right. When I messed up and I knew I had messed up and I was afraid of what might happen, here came my good and loving parents. And they always, always, always acted for my benefit, no matter sometimes how hard the words may have been to hear. But that had a lot more to do with me than them, right? They didn't lock me in my room and, and throw away the key interminably. Well, maybe once. <laughs> you can talk to my mom after church and ask her for yourselves. 
I'm just playing. But they talked with me and they reasoned with me and they did it because they love me. So here's God's motivation if you're struggling this morning. Listen again to the testimony of the crowd. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Friends, it boils down to this. God's not mad at us. The good news of the Gospel is that His wrath was satisfied on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's the good news of the Gospel. That's the central message of Christianity. We sing it in that song. The wrath of God was satisfied. The Bible says it this way, that He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the transaction. That the God-man who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God and that is good news. God does have a plan for us. Jeremiah 29, 11. We all know the verse. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. God means to do all things well. He has a plan and a purpose for everyone, and it's good. One final thought, and I'll throw this in for free. Today, my dear brothers and sisters, Christ the Redeemer family, today we turn the page. The last time we were together, we were celebrating and we were rightly celebrating our first 10 years. Our first 10 years as a church, our first 10 years as a congregation, our first 10 years as a family. But today I say we turn the page. We hold those memories and we carry them with us just like the Israelites did when they crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land. But now it's time for us to think forward. It's time for us to imagine the next 10 years and the next 10 years and the next 10 years. And what I'm talking about now is legacy building. These kinds of questions. When our children get married, where will that happen and what will it look like? When our grandchildren get baptized... Where will that happen and what will it look like? Well, for some of us, that's already happened here. And that's good. When we die one day, when we go to be with the Lord, where will we be buried and what will that look like? What will Christ the Redeemer become in the landscape of Fort Worth? I have an idea in mind and I laid it out before the Sunday school class this morning. It'll look something like a city on a hill. But I'll leave that there for now because we have much more to say about that. Of course, we don't fully know the answers to all of these questions, but I have a hunch that it may start here. May our ears be fully open to hear the Word of God. May our mouths be freely open to speak the Word of God so that as the crowds come into our midst, they too will declare these words. He has done all things well. He has done all things well. Just Look at their lives. Just look at their lives.